0: morning. Our second reading is from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17, verses 20 through 37. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there or look here, but do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and will be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And on that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed, one will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together, and one will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, Where, Lord? He said to them, Where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. The word of the Lord.
1: A few years back, a few years back, a, a good friend of mine, who shall go unnamed, invited me over to his house to watch a movie. I think his family was out of town, and so it was like, hey, you want to come over and watch this thriller, suspense sort of movie? I didn't know what it was about. I was like, sure, I'll go. It's you know, a good friend of mine. We go to his, uh, in, not a basement, I guess it's like your den area, half underground, and it's dark out, and he puts on a movie. The movie starts off with um, some people breaking into like a science lab of, sort of thing, and then. Uh, The next scene essentially cuts to a guy waking up in a hospital bed from a coma. And he wakes up from the coma, and there's nobody else in the hospital. He starts wandering through the hospital. Nobody's there. Out into the streets. Nobody's on the streets. It's London. He ends up in a church where there's dead people everywhere. He eventually finds a priest, but the priest is a zombie. It's a movie 28 Days Later. I think I screamed like a little girl left and right. I tried to hide behind the couch. He wouldn't let me leave. I do not like horror or scary movies at all. There's nothing fun about having to jump every few seconds. I th- literally watch the movie like this most of the time. I don't know what the, the, the excitement is about a zombie movie or, or any of movie like that where they're trying to scare you, except this. The similar idea behind a zombie movie, which is a post-apocalyptic movie, or a dystopian movie like Hunger Games, or a catastrophe movie like uh, Armageddon back in the late 90s, or actually any superhero movie, especially things like The Avengers, all of them are built around a wonder and fear of what's going to happen. Film professors are very clear to point out that in the approach up to the millennium in 2000, and in the years since the 9-11 tragedy, There have been scores and scores of catastrophe and apocalypse movies. It's a genre that people can't get enough of. In part because we are all very aware how fragile life is. And kind of hearing those stories and reinventing them and figuring out how you're going to escape or survive is a part of the narrative that people actually live in today. And in part, it's always been the case. It's actually human nature to want to know where it's all going. When will it all end? Is there something beyond this? When it comes to the end, or better, a better way to think about it is the long future, your life in the long future and this world's, it is important what you think about the end because what you think about the end has a significant influence on how you will live in the present. It always does. People's ends influence their presence. In Luke 17, the passage that we just had read, the Pharisees approach Jesus and they say, when will the kingdom come? Now what do they mean when they're talking about that? We have to understand what they're talking about in order to be able to apply it into our own day. So in the first century Judaism, we've talked about it here numerous times, there was a hope of the kingdom coming. But their hopes were built around this idea. Well, you actually have to hear the backstory of it. Their hopes were built around the tragedies that they had experienced as a people for centuries. So you know the story of Eden. God creates, human beings are put in this garden. Everything is as it is meant to be. But as a result of the fall, they're they're kicked out of the garden and live in a world that is broken. It's the world that we all know, a world that is not right. On top of that, the Jewish history had the story of the covenant calling of God, that they would be his people through Abraham, through Moses, and then David, and he would establish them as his people. But over the course of centuries after the kings, they fell away from God and were exiled. And for centuries, they lived apart from God and the kingdom that they thought they were supposed to live in. And then even by Jesus' day, when they had returned to their land, They still were under the thumb of other oppressive rulers like Rome. And so in that period of centuries of longing for things to be made right, they had a hope, a kingdom hope, that one day God would come. God would arrive in person and bring justice, judging all of their enemies, vindicating his people, That he would restore them and their kingdom and they would flourish. And that's what all those prophecies are about. That one day God would come and reign and establish eternal shalom through his people and to the creation around it. Everything would be made right. And so the Pharisees are saying to Jesus, who seems to have some good insights on things, when? When will that day be? When will the kingdom come? It's a question that wasn't, even at, wasn't just asked centuries ago by Jewish leaders. It's actually one that has become very popular in Christianity over the past 50 years, especially here in the West. Part of that has to do with just natural end times anxieties. Sometimes it is Christianity veering into cult areas, like what happened with the Heaven's Gate crew. There was this view You know, a Christian leader who then kind of goes off the rails a little bit and has this idea that when Halley's Comet comes through, that's going to be the end and there's a planet behind it. In order to get there, we all have to escape from this earth. So in March of 1997, he and all of his followers killed themselves in anticipation of entering the eternity that it was planned for them. You see this time and again if you follow the news in people like Christian numerologist David Mead, who declared September 23rd, 2017 would be the day the Lord came to take his people. That was a few months ago. It didn't happen, and so he had to revise his plans and his numbers. Taking numbers from Revelation or from Daniel and trying to pinpoint the exact day the kingdom is coming. When will Jesus come? Now, I understand actually even in some of those errant ways, they often actually start with a desire to be faithful. Faithful to scripture and to what God is calling them to. One of the challenges, and we always need to be aware of this whenever we're kind of trying to understand stuff, is what is the history of a theology and what does the whole Bible have to say about it? So the historic understanding of what was going to happen didn't have to do with Halley's Comet. It actually had to do with the idea that Christ would come again. Throughout the New Testament, the idea is Christ will come. Christ will come. Christ will come again. One day there will be a resurrection from the dead. We don't believe in a disembodied bliss up in heaven. Christianity across denominations has held that there will be a resurrection of the dead. Christianity throughout the generations and across denominations has held there will be a judgment. And there will be eternal life for those who are in Christ, that God is coming to renew this creation and establish his eternal kingdom. Now, within denominations, there's differences of approach to that, different emphases. One of the most common emphases uh, emphases differences is in these two categories that some of you are going to be getting excited about because you're thinking I'm going to talk all about this today. Um, And some of you will have no idea what I'm talking about. It's around a a chapter in Revelation about the thousand-year reign of Christ. And so in one strain of historic Christianity called Uh, pre-millennialism, it's a view that that's a literal future thing that's going to happen. There will be a thousand year reign of Christ before the eternity. Another view that's historic, just as historic for 2,000 years, is called amillennialism, which means not millennium. It's the idea that it's symbolic language in Revelation about a period when God will reign, and they identify that with the church. Okay, does it matter? If you're somebody who's read a lot about that stuff, I have in the past, here's your your litmus test for any theology about whether it matters. I want you after church to go to the Vienna Inn. I want you to go and talk to the waitresses there or to the people sitting near you and ask them whether they are a premillennialist or an amillennialist. (laughs) Their answer will give you an understanding of whether it matters or not. The theologies that matter, matter to daily life. They're the things that prick the ears of people who don't even know Jesus. We often though, as Christians, get really weird as we narrow down on things that are supposed to be not only secondary, but may not even exist. The problem often is when we are driven by fear, trying to predict things, or a fascination with side things like, when will the end be? Often that misses the mark. And I'm gonna veer into something that I don't normally preach on, um, just because it's actually quoted out of this passage. And for some of you who were like, when I was talking about the millennial thing, you were like, what is he talking about? This is gonna be similar. Um, But we're going to veer into it because our passage is one that's used on it, and I think it's helpful to see how I think through theology and so that you can do the same as you're applying theology, right? So it's the idea of the rapture, okay? That's a phrase, that's a phrase. There's fear, fascination, and a lot of predictions around that word, the rapture. And I'm going to give you an advanced warning. I'm not a fan of it. I used to be. Decades ago, I was fascinated by it, pursued it wholeheartedly, read all about it, knew all sorts of stuff about it. Here's the basic idea if you've never heard it, okay? And you can gloss over this, you can ignore if you've never heard of it as well. But the idea is this, prior to Christ's return, which all Christians believe, there will be a seven-year period of horrible tribulation and suffering in which an antichrist will rule, okay, Um, and will force people to receive a mark of the beast bowing to him or else they will be horribly executed. But first there will be a rapture where... God's faithful people will escape and not have to deal with that. They'll be taken. Okay, so you may have heard that. It was popularized in 1971 by Hal Lindsey, right? The Lake Great Lake Great Great planet, planet Earth carried on by people like past evangelist, and then most recently the Left Behind series, Tim LaHaye. Again, if you don't know any of this, just kind of bear with me for a minute here. The problems that I've found with it, as I studied it more, were first this. It has a very short history. Any theology that you can date to the past two centuries, you should be a little bit more cautious with. It was started in 1830s by a guy named John Nelson Darby. Prior to him, that had never been heard before on any version of Christianity. Now, some of the background behind it had been, for centuries, premillennialism, amillennialism, various views of the end times, but not the rapture. It was started in the 1830s and it took root in the West, in the US and in the UK. A short history always causes me to be a little bit anxious. If I can't trace it back to like 1500 years, the, cr- the church has believed it, should be a little bit wary. Um, the second is the biblical evidence is very weak. It's spotty scriptural passages and if you're trying to understand what matters, it's what is cited the most. And here's, here's an like, for instance, Jesus is kind of important, okay? Whether the shroud of Turin is actually the burial cloth of Jesus, kind of not even mentioned in the Bible. So you put things at different levels, right? So let's go ahead and look at our passage as we're digging into the weeds here, and I'm gonna sit down because if you didn't know, I'm recovering from an ACL surgery. Um, in Luke chapter 17, it's one of the passages that's often cited. And so I'm gonna show you a little bit about how I would think about how we do theology and reading the Bible, as well as looking at this particular topic of the rapture. Often cited in rapture theology is things like Luke 17, verse 35. There will be two, this is talking about the end, there will be two women grinding together, one will be taken and the other left. So the idea is taken up into heaven escaping the, the tribulation, the Antichrist, all the bad suffering stuff, okay? Now, in order to understand what's being said here, you want to read it in context. So the context we actually get in the verses before it, starting in verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Now this is just a couple of verses before and Jesus is giving historic biblical context and for us the context of how we understand the verses that follow. One will be taken, one will be left. Well, he's talking about the same sort of idea. They were going about doing their daily life and then something happens, right? Now the question is, what happened in Noah's day? In Noah's day, the Lord brought judgment and some were taken and some were left. Who was taken and who was left? Is being taken meaning you got taken by a boat or you got taken by the waters? In one context, being taken is a great thing. In another, the context is really bad. Okay, the wording in Luke is duplicitous enough that that all the scholars are like, actually, it could be read either way. So I wouldn't build a theology on a verse and a word that could be read either way. The problem then is when you read it with its co-text in Matthew, So if we go to Matthew and read, here's what we get in Matthew, where the wording in Greek is slightly different. In Matthew we read, for as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, all the same basically, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. Swept away is the same word that's used later on. So will be the coming of the son of man. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. The context in Matthew suggests to be taken is a very bad thing. You get taken by a flood. So while there was a whole book series called Left Behind, according to this passage, you want to be left behind. To be taken is to be judged. Whole theology, whole bunch of books, movies, and extreme excitement is built around words in small verses, that even in their context don't really line up very well. The other actually big, bigger issue is that rapture theology is escapist. It's the idea that we will escape the tribulation and avoid suffering. So you're constantly looking for signs about who is the antichrist, which I can actually remember when I was pursuing this more often, was identified as Mikhail Gorbachev, Those of you who are over 30 will know who that is. The Pope, almost every Pope is always identified as an antichrist, and most recently President Obama. It's interesting that most uh, rapture theologians identify Europeans, Catholics, and Democrats as the antichrist, (laughs) Um, not to say anything about what else is going on there. The problem is it's an assumption that God will provide a way out for us. We're faithful, God's gotta get us a way out, right? And guess where this theology became most popular? In the US and the UK, which is very individualistic and has always been prosperous. In the most wealthy, individualistic, easy societies, the assumption is there's no way God could let bad things happen to us. Suffering, the way it's talked about in the Bible, in the, in the end times, no way. But that does a very poor job of looking at suffering historically or globally and how God is there and even allows it and uses it. I mean, think if, if there's gonna be a bad tribulation and suffering at the end of time, what about being a Christian in the 60s AD in Rome? When Nero, crazy as he was, decided that anybody who claimed to be a Christian, he would round up. He, dipped them in oil, impaled them alive, and then lit them on fire to light up his entire garden for a party. In 250 AD, Decius, another Roman emperor, made every person in the empire sacrifice to the gods while there was an official standing there and they were given a certificate. If you did not have that certificate of sacrificing to the gods, you were executed. Sounds like a mark of a beast. How about being a Christian in the 16th century in Japan when the shoguns were ruling? And not only the, the, the Christian missionaries, but hundreds of thousands of converted Christians were horribly executed for their faith, using a, a practice often called surushi, which was a hanging upside down and a suffering bleeding that's considered worse than crucifixion. How about being somebody who endures Hitler and the Holocaust? let alone being a Christian in the Middle East, North Africa, or many parts of the world today. To say, hey, don't worry, when the bad stuff comes, you will get out, is a theology that lasts only in a suburban peace. Not when the knife has eliminated half of your family because of their faith. Where was the, where was the escape then? Here's the thing, suffering and death, and all of you know suffering and death on some level, they're the things that birth the kingdom of God. In Luke 17, verse 25, Jesus says, but first he, the son of man, must suffer many things and be rejected. Suffer and be rejected. And in verse 33, in case the disciples were like, oh good, Jesus, you suffer, we get out. Jesus says, and whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake, he says elsewhere, will keep it. If you're not sure about whether to become a Christian or not, do not become a Christian so that you will win games or avoid hardship or have cancer skip your family. Salvation in Christianity came through a cross Christianity is about dying on every level. Okay, so how do we do theology well? When it comes to apocalyptic prophecy, like what Jesus is doing here, or in Revelation, or in Daniel, a couple of simple things. One, avoid crass literalism. Okay, some of you guys haven't studied this stuff, but if you go to Revelation 13, it talks about the beast at the end of times. It has seven heads and ten horns. And theologians who get excited about these things always try to worry about who are the seven heads and what are the ten horns? I mean, ten horns, seven heads, they have to represent something. That's crass literalism, and it's unnecessary. You should always start by reading a passage to say, what is the big idea? What is the point? And you know, actually, Revelation, the book of Revelation, I could sum it up right here. I could sum up the book of Revelation and the whole point of why John writes it and why it's in the Bible. God wins. God wins. That's it. Everything else is just commentary. Writing to a bunch of Christians who are suffering, John says, don't worry, God wins. There will be judgment, and there will be life. Persevere, be faithful through the suffering that you are enduring, not that you will escape. God wins. I'll never have to preach on Revelation now. Oh, Seriously. When you're trying to do theology, three things, because all of you are theologians one way or the other. Three things. Make sure it matches the whole Bible as best as it can. The more it's written across there, the more it, it, like, it makes sense of the whole Bible. If your theology or a, a, a way of it doesn't match the whole Bible or doesn't have a way of reading it, it's not got much strength. And there's a, different readings that actually have a whole Bible theology. Two, history. If it has a long history of being upheld, that means it's probably more important and more likely to be something that's important. So that's why you look at things like the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed. And third, look at the implications of a theology. Does it cause you to be more like Jesus or more strange? More loving or more selfish? More generous and self-sacrificial or more self-concerned? the implications of any theology also kind of bear it out. So what's Jesus' big idea and what he's saying in all of this? If I was going to sum it up again, in Luke 17, Jesus' big idea are the basics of the end times stuff in Christianity. One day, as the Nicene Creed says, Christ will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. The church has been citing this since the fourth century. The Apostles' Creed, he will come again in glory. He will come again to judge the living and the dead since the second century, maybe even the first. The mystery of faith, which is cited in Christian communion liturgies since the sixth century. Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. Revelation 22, Jesus says, I am coming soon. John replies, come, Lord Jesus, come. And in 2 Corinthians 5, Paul sums it up. Here's what's going to happen, everyone. You want to know what's going to happen? We'll all die, and we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. That's the big idea. Christ is coming. There will be a judgment. So no worrying about when Christ will come, which is also one of those little sidebars that Christians often get hung up on. Jesus tells it very clearly It's not worry about when. He says it in verse 20 of Luke 17, the kingdom is not coming with signs to be observed. Don't go out and try and figure out when. Read the tea leaves. Some people will come along and say, look there or here. Don't go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. This is very similar to the very last verse that I don't have written up there. It's where the corpse is there the vultures gather. The lightning And the vultures are obvious. If there's vultures, there's something dead. If there's lightning, you see it. When Christ comes, it will be obvious. That's all you need to know. When Christ comes, it will be clear. And it will also be too late. To say, ooh, time out. I take back all the things I've been doing or what I said about you. When Christ comes, it will be clear. But if your faith is in Christ, it will be wonderful. Which is why I actually don't think when it comes to end time stuff, you have to be afraid. Do not be afraid. You know, there's an anxiety that happens when you're watching a game and you have a favorite team playing in the game and the game's close. And the anxiety is built around, is my team going to win, Right? Many of us go around looking at the world around us like a game that we're not sure how it's going to end. Here's here's a spoiler, Jesus' team wins, okay? That's not a question. When you go around unsure of that, things like politics, global events, Even technological advances can cause you a lot of fear and anxiety because who knows what this is going to mean. But when you are certain of eternity, when you are certain of where it's going, it enables perspective on every part of life. It enables perspective on raising your kids, on your finances that might not be going great, on your own future. Your body may be deteriorating, but it is deteriorating, unless you're under 21, I think. 27 no it's definitely younger than that sorry <laughs> after 21 it's all downhill right do not fear god is good the ultimate outcome is not in doubt which means i can give everything to him my kids my finances this our country yeah not fear And it's not just about the future. The kingdom that Jesus came to bring has implications now too. Jesus says in verse 21, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The Pharisees say, when is it coming? When is it coming? And Jesus says, the kingdom of God is is in the midst of you, at hand. It's within your grasp. It's before your eyes. Here's what's happening. The Pharisees are like, Jesus, when is the kingdom coming? And Jesus says, The kingdom is right before you, you idiots. He didn't say that, actually. He's much nicer. In me, Jesus. Don't go looking for the kingdom, look to Jesus. In Luke 17, Jesus, in that very phrase, is saying, God has arrived in order to kick off his kingdom. In Luke seven, the, John the Baptist is in prison and he sends his disciples to ask Jesus if, hey, are you the one or are we just expect somebody else? And what does Jesus say? Go back and tell that stupid cousin of mine, I am the one. No. Jesus says in verse 22 of Luke seven, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. He's citing the things he's doing, which are a direct reflection of the hopes of Isaiah. Isaiah is happening now. The dead are raised, the poor have the good news preached to them, the deaf hear. Isaiah 59, 60, 61, 65, they're happening in me, Jesus. Jesus goes around, if you go read the Gospels, Jesus goes around, he gives dignity to the outcasts that nobody wanted to be near, hope to the poor, forgiveness to sinners, he challenges the proud and the powerful, he loves everyone with a generous sacrificial compassion. Everywhere he went, he undid the effects of the fall, restoring things to the way Eden intended them to be. He calms storms, heals the sick, frees people from demon possession, restores the unclean to their communities again, gives food of bread to the hungry, and even makes wine to make a wedding more celebration a wedding celebration more joyous. And then he gives himself on a cross. The kingdom is here. Now, in Christian theology, we talk about the kingdom of God being two things, already and not yet. Jesus says the kingdom is at hand, it's in your midst. And that's true for us today already. Because of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, we can experience God's restoring, healing, presence, power, and love today. And not yet. One day, God's reign will be in full and forever. Why does any of this matter? Because ultimately, there still is the implications thing. What we believe about the ends has implications for how we live now. So ready? If you don't believe that there is eternity, if there is no end after this, then you'll live absolutely for today. And that means all your success, all your pleasure, All your health has to be now. And that's how most people live. That's why they're willing to crush other people to get to their dreams, because heaven is now. If, in one stream of Christian theology, the end involves escape for me as a believer and destruction of everything else, then who cares about this world or what I do in it? I'm getting out and that's all that matters. But if, as I believe Christianity teaches, Christ is coming to restore all things, to reign here, and it's already begun in Jesus, then it's not about me escaping and getting into heaven, having my fire insurance. It's about experiencing and enjoying the kingdom and carrying it on now. N.T. Wright puts it this way, God's new world of justice and joy, of hope for the whole earth, was launched when Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter morning, and he calls his followers to live in him and by the power of the Spirit, and so to be the new creation people here and now, bringing signs and symbols of the kingdom to birth on earth as in heaven. God has come and is restoring all things in Jesus if you feel like you're an outsider to this whole thing right now, Jesus offers you his kingdom in himself today. If you know Jesus, his kingdom is not just intended to be something you're waiting for, it's intended to be your kingdom now. James Bryant Smith wrote, one day the kingdom of God will be the governing power over the entire universe. But for now, it is intended to be the governing power over you and me. In the Lord's Prayer, we say, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as in heaven. On earth as in heaven. On earth includes you and me. Let's pray. Lord, help us to see what's important. It's not always easy. And even as I was rambling on about random things that people most often don't care about, (laughs) you do matter. You came for us to restore, heal, and give us forgiveness and hope. Help us to see that in you, everything we really long for is found. Amen.